really, really fun one today. Um, I, I was very happy when Jonathan agreed to this. So, so today we're joined by Jonathan Howell of Big World Pictures, um, which I learned moments ago was actually a 50C3 nonprofit. So I can't wait to dig into that a little bit. Uh, but Jonathan, uh, Big World Pictures is a is a is a nonprofit dedicated to cross cultural understanding uh, through the distribution and exchange of critically acclaimed foreign films. Uh, did I did I get that right? And also, thank you for joining. Yeah, more or less. Yeah, that sounds good. Thanks. Great. Thanks for having me. Of course. No, I'm I'm so happy that you're here. Um, so, Jonathan, you have been running. Uh, big world pictures now for quite a while for is it is it 10 years 10 years yeah uh, I, I like to say the company was founded in uh, at, at the Berlin Alley in 2013 that's when I first started acquiring films for the company and then our first theatrical release was almost a year later in uh, January 2014 and what was your first uh, theatrical release that was in bloom uh, the Georgian feature that premiered at the Berlin Alley in 2013 um by Nana Ektemishvili Vili, sorry if I'm saying that right, and Simon Gross. Yeah, okay. I that's amazing. So I mean that okay, you know, the first thing that comes to mind, and maybe this is just a good way of of kind of an intro into big world. Uh I, I want to dig into the history and how you got started and what the name means and all these things. But the first thing that just strikes me, and I hope people hear right out of the gate, the the films that you're curating are phenomenal in terms of, uh, you know, you talk about cross-cultural exchange, cross-cultural understanding. I mean, right out of the gate with, at least with OCN distribution, I saw that your film from Siming Lang, mm -hmm. and then the second film was Radu Jude, like you're, I mean, you know, we'll get into, I know that you have more releases, but I just, how are you finding these movies? And, 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 and just also thank you from the collecting community. These are phenomenal. Oh, glad you enjoy them. Um, basically, I think the, our acquisition strategy is similar to, or it's, it's kind of modeled on New Yorker films, which is where I learned the business and worked for about a decade. Okay. Um, it's a combination of classics and, um, also just discovering new filmmakers who have a lot of potential. So uh, examples of that latter category is Radu Jude um, and Maya Vitkova from Bulgaria. Um, let's see. Well, yeah, of course, Nana Ektemishvili and Simon Gross. Uh, we actually just acquired their second feature, My, My Happy Family, which had been a Netflix title, so barely saw the light of day in theaters. But now we're going to try to get it into theaters and at least make it available on home video. Um, sorry, what was the question? I'm, I'm, no, yeah. it mostly it was just an appreciation for what you're doing and also kind of how you acquire. So that's perfect. Mm -hmm. um, but, um, you know, it, it's just it's phenomenal to me because, you know, it, it um, feels like through OCN right now, I use you a lot of times as a way of saying, uh, the the breadth of content that they have in, mm, that sure. they're distributing into the U.S. Because yeah. uh, I just, you know, it feels like cheating almost. This is what I say. To be able to buy a, a Sai Ming Lang film through um, the Vinegar Syndrome website. <laughs> like, mm, yeah, right. 
I, I really love that. So, well, anyways, our latest release there is uh, is Nuri Bilga Shalon's uh, breakthrough film, Distant. So that's another. That's actually a title of New Yorker Films released originally in two thousand four. Um, so that's an example of the classics that we're picking up as well and trying to make available. It's been out of release for about a decade now. I love that. Yeah, I want to dig into that because by by a fun coincidence, the first interview that we had in 2023 was with Elizabeth Yu, who um, did the artwork for Distant. Right, yeah. And so we were talking right. about that. And uh, and then when she said that, I was like, oh, that's exciting. <laughs> I think we're going to be talking to Jonathan here before long. Um, but um, yeah, so the, let's go back a little bit because I got I just jumped in. I just wanted to kind of celebrate you. Um, but let's jump back a little bit. So 10 years ago, you're in um, Berlin, start acquiring pictures. Did you have a name for that? Is that when you kind of incorporated and and, and got a name? Uh, yeah, yeah. Well? I'd, okay. I'd already been planning it for a little while and thinking of, uh, I, I had a logo made by a colleague at New Yorker Films, Ron Ramsland, and um, I came up with a name from the notion that, uh, well, you know, the, the Walt Disney thing is it's a small world after all. Uh, I beg to differ. It's actually a big world and we aim to show the diversity of the world by acquiring films from all over the world. So we have films from, uh, you know, several from Europe, a lot from Eastern Europe, probably dominant categories, Eastern Europe, uh, a couple from Brazil, uh, a few from, a couple from Taiwan, one from China, uh, one from Canada, we, we used to have, I've lost that one, but uh, it was a Denny Cote's curling. We, um, yeah, we're just trying to, show different cultures and to expose people to cultures they otherwise wouldn't encounter. I, okay, so I have to just say uh, on a personal level, that's very exciting to hear. So I grew up uh, between London, Houston, and then Indonesia. Mm, wow. And, and so this is a, uh, there, there's this term, I don't know if you're familiar with this term, but uh, it's called third culture kid. A lot of people mm. used to kind of define growing up without a home culture. And so this uh -huh. idea of traveling kind of becomes the home culture. Uh-huh. Um, and and having multiple sort of kind of core identities is, right. you know, and and uh, so anyways, so just at a at a personal level, everything you just described is very satisfying. And I hope and I hope that people listening understand the importance of this. Um, because I mean it, you know, maybe we, I, I've seen, so I've seen the first two that you put out through OCN and then I want to mm -hmm. ask about the second two, but I think a film like Rebels of the Neon God, just if we can just start there for a minute, you know, one of the things that jumped out to me is that that is fully a Taiwanese film. They're not, that was mm -hmm. not meant to be sort of uh, made for international audiences, but mm -hmm. in, in a funny way, by going so specific into this one story, it almost in in a way becomes more universal because you get to see, yeah. Go go on. Yeah, is that is that is that was your experience as well? Um well in that, in that specific case, that was um I, I was shocked that the film was even available. Um I, I had seen it at BAM a couple of times and you know, as special exhibitions. 
but it had never been released theatrically in the US, which again was shocking to me based on uh, the subsequent, I, I mean, I, I he was always a rock star to me. As, as soon as I saw Vive L'Amour, I was like, oh my God, this guy's amazing. Yeah, yeah. And so everything, I saw everything he released after Vive L'Amour and to find that Rebels of the Neon God was out of, you know, never released theatrically in the US was just such a surprise for me. So of course, I started tracking it down, finally uh, found it and acquired it. Um, strangely, it didn't, it got, a, it got perfect reviews. It's um, you know, not that I like to use Rotten Tomatoes as a gauge, but it's 100% fresh on Rotten Tomatoes. Awesome. And uh, it got a half page review in the New York Times from A.O. Scott with a huge photo and it didn't perform. So we, it was really disappointing uh, box office on that theatrical release. We played some landmark theaters, didn't perform there. And then it's taken, um, probably took five years of it being in release for it to get some traction. And now I feel like it's really coming into its own and it's really become part of the canon, really. That's a fascinating journey. So in that, um, in that time, so you're, when, if you don't mind, what, what year roughly did you acquire it then? So this is like this 2015. Oh, yeah, we released it in 2015, I should say. Yeah. Oh, okay. So you're saying that it really took up until about 2020 and then now you have the physical release and now mm -hmm. you're seeing that momentum that you just assumed would have been there from the beginning. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, well, I mean, I'm glad the story ends well. It's a beautiful film. And I think for, I was, I was trying to describe this as I was writing up on it just briefly, but it, it feels sort of like a slow cinema type of film at times, but, it, yeah. but at the same time, it's got a lot going on and it's very engaging yeah. and it's, it's very easy to watch. Yeah, it's very, I think it's unique in his work. Um, and I think from what I've heard, there are a few things he's not really satisfied with about it. He feels like the, the soundtrack, which I think is so memorable and everyone seems to love the soundtrack, including me. Yeah. I think he felt like that was not something he really wanted to, but it was pushed upon him. Um, but it's just, yeah, it's such a, I mean, it's, it's clearly his most accessible film. Uh, and I feel like with each film after that, he's become a little less accessible, uh, <laughs> more slow cinema. But again, Vive L'Amour, his second feature was the first one I saw and it just blew me away. I, Powerful. You know, the, the, the silent, uh, silent comedy, there's like Buster Keaton type com comedy in there, physical comedy. Yeah. Yeah. No, I love that. Um, wow. Okay. Let's, well, and then before we talk about Radu Jude for a second, that's a great, I feel like that's a great intro into kind of your mind and how you work and, and how you like to find these films. Um, so are you mostly finding them through festivals? Yeah, almost exclusively through festivals. Um, only one or two were not uh, a festival, you know, first views. Um, and those were mostly the classics. Like we had a couple of Eric Romare films. Uh, a Summer's Tale was our biggest film to date. That was um, in 2014. Uh, we released The Tale of Winter later that year. Oh, cool. And uh, then uh, Rebels and um, Distant. Those were, those were basically the repertory titles that we picked up, classics. Yeah. Uh, everything else, like really, they've all been festival views, mostly, to be honest, from the Berlinale. I think I'd say almost half our catalog is from the Berlinale. Okay. And I know that, so do you mind giving me a little bit of background into the Berlinale? Because I, I know a lot of the fans that 
are listening are, you know, we, we focus a lot on um, kind of we're, we're split personality. Half of the podcast is about Criterion and let's call it art house films. And the other half of the podcast is around just boutique Blu-ray distribution and, and mm-hmm. the exciting things that are happening in that world, which tends to drift more towards genre and horror. <laughs> Although okay. I'm so happy that it's not fully that way. Um, but do you mind, like, what is the Berlin Alley and how are you getting films from there? And just kind of, yeah, do you want to give them a little background? Well, it's uh, it's one of the two big festivals in Europe that New Yorker films always attended. So again, since that's where I learned the business, I kind of modeled the company on their acquisition strategy. Um, I try to go to Berlin, Cannes, and Toronto each year. Doesn't always work out that I make it to all three, but Berlin has been a consistent one that I've, we've, I've made it to every year. Um, that basically you know covers the whole year in a way, if they're spaced out in just the right amount where you can get all of the big premieres from these, or most of the big premieres from these three festivals. Um, so it's uh, about 10 days, 10 or 12 days in February. And they're just, you know, numerous films going, going on all the time, numerous categories. There's the forum, there's panorama, there's the main competition. Uh, there's a repertory, um, sidebar and, um, then there's also a market alongside it, the EFM. European film market, which is along with Cannes, Marché du Film, those are the two biggest European markets to my knowledge. So um, when you're not seeing films that are actually selected by the festival, you can see market screenings that can be things that didn't get selected or maybe things that um, played at a previous film festival somewhere else, but still haven't been picked up by all all, uh, territories. So the sales agents are still trying to find a buyer for them in certain territories. Oh, fascinating. So it's just really vibrant kind of marketplace for film. Oh my God. So uh, yeah, it's, it's very busy. You know, and it sounds like, sounds like a dream and really is one of the main perks of my job, but it's also really, really frantic and busy because you're watching films all day long. You could watch them all evening long if you wanted to. I usually try to get something to eat at some point. So um, yeah, it's just like, it's it's a frantic time, but really rewarding too. And I guess it's coming up. We're recording this oh, on yeah. February first, yeah, yeah. but when is it? Uh, when is it this year? Starts the sixteenth, February sixteenth to twenty sixth, I believe. Okay, so this is going to drop right smack in the middle of that festival, then. Um, oh. Huh. Uh, so you'll okay. you'll be there. <laughs> I'll let you know. It may be a day or two before you can hear it when this drops. <laughs> if, okay. uh, if you're in the middle of it, but I can't wait to see what what comes out. Um, so, th- okay, I'm so I'm so happy this is the way the conversation is going because one of the things I've noticed, and you might be the best person to to answer this, is it feels like for the boutique labels, right? That are that are just in the way that we've that I define boutique. I know everyone kind of has a different look at this, but the way that I always talk about boutique is if it's not the studio that's putting out the physical release, right? Where mm-hmm where there's an acquisition component before you even get into the production of the disc. Mm-hmm. Um, for a lot of these boutique companies, it feels like it's easier to go and look in a studio's catalog or look in the, like you call it, the, the repertory sort of side of things, mm-hmm. right? Um, and so I think maybe it's less expensive. I, I don't really understand the business, but what I think is missed in that is the films that are coming out now. Mm-hmm. Right. 
and it just feels like it's through streaming and through maybe uh, just the changing nature of the physical media as a whole, it feels like we're in this weird kind of um, weird time where it's actually a lot of these films are, are somewhat getting lost because they're just mm -hmm. showing at festivals and that's it. Yeah, well, I have a lot to say on that, probably more than you have time for, but I think to be more focused about your point, um, I can say that we do have a couple of our new releases that will be coming out through OCN in the in the months ahead. I'm not going to say what they are because OCN sure. likes to keep that uh, as a special announcement. But sure. uh, yeah, we have one that, that just premiered in 2022, another one premiered in 2021. So... Um, it's not entirely the older films. Of course, the Rodri Jude film that we released last summer through OCN is also, um, I think it was from 2019. Um, so it's not just the repertory things, but you know, what, the, what they're looking for, and we, of course, agree with them, is we want a Blu-ray that's going to be, um, it's going to have some demand behind it. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the smaller films, you know, sometimes we'll release a film theatrically and it does, you know, $20,000 gross. So that means a lot of people haven't seen it and they may not be aware of it and there's not going to be as much demand for it, clearly. So you're, that's just more of a kind of case by case, I guess, on... Yeah, I mean, this, yeah. yeah, I mean, Blu-ray Blu production is pretty expensive. So you have to make sure you're uh, investing well, you know, just pick a winner. Um, I, I, I'm just curious now, you've, you've whet my appetite. What, what was the direction you wanted to take that answer just at a high level? I'm curious. Oh, what? just, just that, um, theatrical has become really, really, really challenging. And it was already, it's been moving that direction for, you know, over a decade, I would say, mm. um, maybe longer. Um, but especially since the pandemic, I mean, we survived the pandemic but when the theaters reopened, they were, they, they were thinking, oh, we lost all this time. We lost all this money. We have to make it up. And what we see in theaters, or what I've observed, is that most theaters, even the art houses, are playing as commercial art house and even sometimes commercial commercial as they can possibly find. And uh, the smaller films are uh, often not, not getting selected. Um, it's harder to get a date for a smaller, especially foreign language film, even if, it, if it's critically acclaimed or it's won some prizes. Um, and to be honest, it's not just theaters. The audiences are staying home as well because the, the core theatrical foreign film audience is basically 60 plus years old. And I guess during the pandemic, they maybe they outfitted their homes with home theater systems and maybe they just thought, oh, it's not worth going back to the theaters now. I don't know what to say about that, but it's just uh, we, we've lost a, a core element of our audience. And uh, they haven't come back yet. Interesting. So even if the theaters do program these smaller foreign films, the audience isn't really supporting them. Oh, that's such a shame because I feel like from a creativity perspective, you know, throughout history, we kind of go through waves where, and I feel like we're right now in a very strong wave of interesting new films that are being made. Mm -hmm. um, mm, I, just, I agree. Yeah. And so it's, it's, it's a shame that that's not getting seen. I, 
Right. You know, I, I was, I feel like I was very fortunate when I was in college was 2000 to 2005 and I was in Dallas, which at that time had, I think it was 24 screens that were playing independent or, or foreign films. Mm-hmm. And so I was spoiled for choice mm-hmm. and, you know, it was amazing. Like there would be, um, I always joke about this, but, you know, looking back, it was kind of an honor. It was the, uh, you know, the cremaster cycle. Yes. It was one of the few places in the U.S. where they showed the entire thing. So on a Saturday, I went and I just sat. And honestly, I hated it. I was so bored. Mm-hmm. But I did like the experience of yeah. like that's it was it was a cool thing to be able to go. And they had enough screens in Dallas where they could do that on a Saturday. <laughs> they showed the whole thing. Wow. Um, and so I just yeah, like I, I you know, I, I live in Austin now, which has a fairly vibrant film scene. But mm-hmm. even the the screens that would typically show a lot of foreign and art house uh, pictures, for one, there's not that many of them anymore. Mm-hmm. Uh, and for two, like you said, I have noticed they've gone more commercial with their releases, um, mm-hmm. which is an interesting. So I, I, I completely see that trend here mm-hmm. um, now that you mention it. Well, we, we've talked a little bit about Radu Jude, but maybe this is the good time to get into it. So I don't care if we go... Uh, I do. I do not care if we go down in history as barbarians. Uh, it's a long title, mm-hmm. but uh, Radu gives a fantastic one of my favorite director intros ever mm-hmm. on right. on that uh, on the disc. So if anyone's yeah. listening, if you see the movie, please please watch the intro. Um, yeah. right. I was just just one book after the other of where the history of this is coming from is fascinating. Yeah, yeah, well, he's so well read, and he really integrates the stuff into the films, especially that film. You, know, you see the the protagonist reading texts from yeah um, that are related to the Holocaust or even past uh, pogroms, and well, yeah, and some very really, provocative decisions too, like just holding an image on oh, the yeah. screen for a minute or something. Yeah, yeah, totally. Um, so, do, are you getting to work with Radu? No, I, like, do you, you know, are you talking to him and just kind of working with him directly? Um, I don't talk to him that, that often, but I do, um, I, I did manage to catch up with him in Berlin a couple of years ago. And I asked, so what's your next film? He said, I'm making a sex comedy. It's like, what? <laughs> I really thought he was joking, of course, but, uh, then the next year, Bad Luck Banging came out. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. So he's, he's, uh, he's unpredictable. He's really experimental you know he really pushes the envelope uh that year that i I met up with him in berlin he had two films at the berlinale uh uppercase print and a documentary um called the exit of the trains which is i think three hours long and it's entirely composed of still images of victims of uh this this program before um previous to world war ii and someone is reading um, letters of their contemporaries or their family members about, you know, about this person who died in the pogrom. And that's, wow. that's the entire film is three hours of that. And wow. so he's, he, he said that was his archival period. Between that and uppercase print, he was uh, examining archival materials which he actually did in Aphorim as well. He, you know, all the text in Aphorim was uh, basically found in contemporary sources. 
know, not maybe not all, but it's all inspired by that, and much of it was actually sourced from contemporary sources. Interesting. Um, well, like you said, the the fact of how well read he is, and just sort of how intelligent he is, comes through uh, in Barbarian. So it sounds like that's continuing in his other pictures. You've released mm -hmm. Aphrim and Uppercase Print and Barbarians, is that right? So you have at least right. three of his pictures. Uh, yeah, and also Scarred Hearts. That was the second one we did. Scarred Hearts, okay. And are these, just going back to the conversation we were just having about theatrical, um, is, you know, are his films playing uh, fairly well when, they, when they're released? Or are people kind of aware of that? name well, now i'm going to see Atherim did actually uh, after we released it and actually really released it in january 2016 on a weekend that there was a snowstorm that closed theaters on saturday so uh it was kind of devastating in that regard but that was another case where we got a, a huge excellent review from a.o scott in the times um he put it on his top 10 list that year and um it ended up, actually, we, we did manage to hold over at Angelica and Lincoln Plaza. Okay. And we ended, it ended up grossing over 100000 to be our second largest, uh, second best performing film after A Summer's Tale. And it, I guess that also put it in, the, I think, in the top four Romanian New Wave releases in the U.S. I think um, only the films of Christian Mungiu have grossed more than Aferim at least to date. Okay. Well, that's exciting. So, um, the others, not so much. Um, yeah, sorry to say, uh, uh, I do not care if we could die in history as barbarians grossed around 12,000 theatrically. Oof. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I, well, I, so you're fighting this good fight here. Um, uh, and I, you know, I, this is the thing that I just want to keep going back to this point. I mean, I hope people start catching on because Rebels of the Neon God is Taiwan. I got that. That that it is Taiwan, right? I said right. that. Okay, yeah. yeah. Barbarians. I do not care if we go down in history as barbarians is um, Romanian, mm -hmm. and I think just just as a really quick aside before we get into Victoria, that title. I know it's a bit of a, a mouthful, but he, I love how he actually shows the text it comes from and gives the history. Mm -hmm. um, right. Anyways, I just uh, yeah. I mean, he makes a point of. Uh, he, he makes a point of putting the title in quotation marks because it is an actual quotation. <laughs> yeah. It, he, he doesn't want people, of course, to think that that's his perspective, but uh, you know, this is a quote. And so we put it on the poster in quotes. We put it on the DPD box in quotes uh, because it's a quote. Yeah. That's, that's awesome. Um, and then you go into Victoria, which is, mm -hmm. What, what, what is the country that that's from, from Maya Bulgaria. Bulgaria. Okay, yeah. that's right. Um, and Interestingly, she, the director of Victoria, worked with Radu Jude on a couple of short films prior to making Victoria. Oh, wow. Okay. And her, I think they co-wrote a couple of shorts. And she has an interesting background because wasn't she also, there was a, was it Terry Gilliam or she, wasn't she also working with one of the Monty Python? Um, hmm. I'm not aware of that characters before this okay but um so she was working with uh, but she's working with radu jude and then developed victoria what um can you tell me just a little bit about the film and kind of everybody sure. about a little bit about the film yeah it's i mean it's hard a hard film to describe but i think it's um it's really 
an ideal film for Women's History Month, which is coming up because it's, as Richard Brody of The New Yorker called it, uh, it's one of the great recent films about women by a woman. Okay. Um, he put it on his top 10 list that year. And um, it's, uh, it, it basically covers the history, recent history of Bulgaria from uh, communist times through 89 and the changes after 89. And uh, it's really runs the gamut of tones as well, which some people I think have not have been thrown by that and have not understood what she was aiming for. But it's whimsical early on. It's got some magical realism in the middle of it. And then it's rather dark and almost depressive toward the end. But I think that's, yeah, in my interpretation, that's all very much intentional by the director because it reflects, again, the history of the country and how, how history has gone in the last, uh, let's say, 20 years. Wow, I love a lot of those, a lot of times those are the films that get, you know, revisited. I don't know if that's a cliche word, but a lot of times those are the films that get kind of revisited later and, and discovered as really powerful works. Yeah, I think it's, I really think you're right about that. And this is a prime example of something that should be rediscovered at some point soon, I hope. Uh, it premiered at Sundance, generated some buzz in Sundance. I saw it in the Berlin Alley that same year. And, um, the critical response was great in general, and the audiences again didn't go. But I think it's you know it's a very entertaining film. It's um, to put it in the, in the briefest terms possible, it's about a girl without a belly button. So this baby is born with no belly button, and she's considered a um, you know a, a phenomena, of course, and the communist leaders take her as an example they make her the baby of the year and they say this is the the, the person of the future because now women can they don't have to be tied to their children they can you know go to work immediately and uh but of course it's also it shows a lack of connection to her family in a uh, negative way as well which is also examined in the film you know, it's interesting. I so Bulgaria. You said, what year did this come out? You said it was twenty sixteen. I think it was twenty fourteen. I think we picked it up in twenty fifteen. We released it in twenty sixteen. So right around that time was also, I believe, it was a Hungarian movie called Liza the Fox Fairy. Hmm, I'm not aware of that. Um, which is kind no. of this. It's a it's a comedy, kind of a darker, dark comedy maybe, but it, it has a lot of magical realism. I just I'm, I'm interested. I, you know these kind of movements that are happening. I wonder if those directors are, are connected at all um, or think, or maybe it's just a coincidence. I mean, you know, there's Hungary and Romania and Bulgaria. These countries are so, um, maybe they don't get the same attention as other countries in terms of their film canon, but they have really well-known film schools and very established film schools. Yeah, um, I um, when we released In Bloom, one of the quotes, one of the poll quotes I used in the trailer was, Georgia may be the new Romania, which um, one of my family members found really entertaining because he's like, what does that mean? I was like, oh yeah, I guess that's inside baseball. If you are aware of what Romanian cinema has been for the past 15, 20 years, then 
you realize that what that means. And I really think it's true. I, it's in evidence in the last couple of Berlinales, especially two years ago, there were so many Georgian films in Berlin and they were fantastic. And I guess, is there, are they mostly coming from Belisi or? Um, I, I'm not sure where they're centered. I would imagine that's the case. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, I need to, I need to see more um, films from Georgia uh, then if that's true, because I, I didn't, I didn't know that actually. Um, so I'll, I'll pay, pay attention to that. Um, the yeah, last one that's center of a new wave. That's interesting. That's super interesting. Yeah, I'm going to dig into that then because I love, well, we've already kind of covered this, but yeah, I just love this idea that these films are getting picked up from different countries that aren't on the tip of people's tongues when, when they think about film. Mm -hmm. um, I think right along with that, most people that I know, when they think about Turkish cinema, they think of it as, um, I don't want to say a joke, but they think of Turkish Spider-Man, Turkish Superman, you know, Turkish... Um, the these these kind of exploitation movies that are coming mm. out in the 60s and 70s and 80s mm. um uh, but nuri so nuri bilge Ceylon, did i get that right i think so uh i've heard jaylon Ceylon. i'm not sure which is actually correct but okay so he put out uh distant mm -hmm. and that's the fourth film he released through right uh, ocn this is about or, actually it is 20 years old now yeah exactly yeah, um, premiered in Turkey in 2002, no, 2003. Yeah, so, no, 2002. And then it played in Cannes in 2020, or sorry, in 2003. New Yorker Films picked it up and released it in 2004. Yeah, and that's, that's amazing. So what, uh, just again, for the sake of giving some more exposure to this one, can you give a quick synopsis of this for, for everyone? Um, well, if, if you've seen films by Ceylon, then you, you kind of have an idea of his themes. You know that his films are also impeccably shot because he's, by training, he's a photographer. And he, I, I don't know if he's been shooting all the films since then, but I know he basically made this one almost single-handedly. I think he does the editing. I know he shot it. Obviously, he wrote and directed it. Uh, so he's, you know, he's, he's got pretty much all the credits. Um, it's a pretty simple story about kind of a city mouse and a country mouse, but they're both, um, the, the, uh, a guy from the village goes to visit his cousin in the city. His cousin's well-established as a photographer in the city. And, uh, they're just, it's a bit of an odd couple thing. You know, they're cultural <laughs> clashes. There's a little bit of comedy. Uh, very subtle humor um, and a lot of angst and, uh, you know, just failure to communicate. I, I do like how certain directors can use comedy um, to kind of pull out some emotions in, in good ways. It's almost, uh, it, if it's done right, it can be a great way to humanize the characters very, very quickly. Right, exactly, yeah. Um, well, it's interesting. So you, you you mentioned that this film has a lot of photography in it, um, or beautiful photography in it. So that that kind of leads me to my one of my other questions I had. Um, I would say Barbarians is, is an exception here, simply because uh, the cover art is something that's very specific to the movie. 
Um, I, I mean, they all are, but I wouldn't say that it's uh, as intricately designed. So I don't know if this fits my question, although I love the cover for, for Barbarians. Um, but the other three movies you put out through OCN have very stunning uh, slipcovers, just very, very beautiful work. Um, are you working with the same graphics artist or are you doing that each one is a different one? It does seem like a slightly different style. Well, I'm, I'm actually leaving that to OCN and I just get approval of them. So we, okay. I, we end up making a selection from a few different ideas that are presented. Uh, but OCN is really overseeing hiring the artists. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense because the the one that Elizabeth, you did for Distant, she was talking about how when she was watching the film, she couldn't help but just marvel at how beautiful some of the shots were. Mm, right. um, and so she was doing her best to kind of capture uh, to capture that with that cover. Mm. Um, yeah, but he now he captures like golden golden uh, hour sunlight. He captures these amazing snowstorms in um, in the city, and yeah, it's just really gorgeously shot. I have to say. I think most I've been able, I think it was maybe 30 years ago now. I was a little, I was quite a bit younger, but we actually got to go to Istanbul and um, and then into one of this kind of neighboring cities. Um, I, I don't remember a lot because I was probably around 10 or 12 when we went, but I do remember being surprised at assuming I was going to go into sort of like a poor country, just not knowing much about Turkey. And uh, it's stunning. Like it's, there's so many beautiful parts of that country. So I'm glad that, uh, glad that he's doing a good job of capturing it. Oh, yeah. um, at a high level without going into, you know, a lot of specifics, obviously, uh, has the partnership with OCN been good for you? Are you happy that, uh, you know, are, are these films getting kind of yeah, purchased I, and viewed? Yes. Yeah. I, I think it's great. Um, it, it gives us an opportunity to release some of these, um, well, like Victoria, I, I don't think we would have probably put it out on Blu-ray ourselves. We, we have released two Blu-rays as big, big world pictures. Uh, we did Roger Jude's first feature from us, which was Afarim. And uh, the extras on there include a short that won Sundance called The Tube with a Hat. Okay. Um, the other one we probably uh, you know, might not have done it. Oh, sorry. The other, the other one we did release it through Big World Pictures is Still Life by Jiazhang K. Yeah. But it's uh, it's really a huge investment for a small nonprofit like us to release mm -hmm. Blu-ray. And so working with OCN really helps with that. Uh, that's great. I, I've seen th three different movies from Jiazhang K. I have not seen Still Life yet. Um, but... I am fascinated by what he's done so far. Yeah. Um, so I'm going to have to watch Still Life. Can we still, let's see, I'm just on your website now. Can you buy, so you have it on demand on the site. Can you buy, <laughs> oh, here it is, home video format. Okay, great. So this shows some of the stuff you can buy as well. Okay, wonderful. Yeah, I'll have to make sure to, to pick that up. Um, his one called Platform mm -hmm, right. was one of my favorite movies. I just, yeah. I, I think it's just perfect. So I can't wait to see more of what he's done as he's got as he's matured as a filmmaker. Yeah, I think he's um, since since the earlier films I saw, New Yorker films released. Um, I think he's the most important Chinese filmmaker of the era. That's, yeah, I 
I don't, yeah, that I completely believe that uh, just from what I've seen so far, he's, he's got such a master, um, masterful ability behind the camera. Um, okay. So the, I think we covered a lot of the foundations of people just trying to get to know you. The nonprofit was that, uh, just, you know, AGFA is a nonprofit as well hmm. here. Um, but that's the only other time that I've heard of this style. Is there a particular um, benefit as you're as you're working with these artists or buying these films? Is it helpful to be a nonprofit, or was there a reason that you set up that way? Um, it's a it's a little bit of a winding path that led us to that, but um, to make it as short as possible, uh, I was working from New at, working at New Yorker Films from 2001, and. I heard it said a few times that, oh, they shouldn't have, they should have been a nonprofit because their films are basically educational. They started in the 60s and they had all these political, like very left-leaning political films, including a lot of documentaries that were primarily sold as or rented to universities. So yeah, yeah I heard it said that they should have been a nonprofit. It would have made more sense. So when I started thinking about forming a company, uh, Originally, it was for The World According to Shorts, which was a program I used to play at BAM every year from 2000 to 2007. Okay. Um, that's how I originally formed the company. Uh, the World According to Shorts was a nonprofit. And um, eventually, we released three programs of shorts through New Yorker Films, uh, theatrically and on DVD. Uh, and then when I decided to move into feature films in 2013, we just took the same company and you know, adapted the name and the mission statement slightly. Ah, okay, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, I, I feel like just given your background, there's, I, I just have a personal interest and I think other folks may be interested as well. Was there a movie or a set of films that sort of hooked you into cinema early on? Like, do you remember, was there, kind of some seminal pictures for you that you saw early on that took you down this path? Yeah, I think what, what I always trace it back to is um, the 10.30 Saturday night movie when I was a teenager. I would stay up and watch this movie from the Kansas City TV channels. Okay. Uh, it was always a film from the 70s, from the new American cinema of the 70s. Um, the some of the titles I remember are Nashville, the Last Picture Show, Five Easy Pieces, Taxi Driver, um, probably MASH was on there too. And of course they're edited for TV, so they cut out some things. But um, I just, uh, I had always been a scopophile. I'd always watched, you know, sometimes I'd watch TV just to watch TV. Like I would turn on the TV as a, as a child and watch the pro bowlers tour or like fishing shows or golf. <laughs> right, right just because that's what was on and we didn't get that many channels. And of course it was dead boring, but I, I just I was compelled to do it. So at this point in my teens, uh, I started watching these movies and I just felt like something was happening to me when I watched them and I couldn't really define it, but I just felt moved by them. So that was, um, I think that was my intro into really fine cinema, I would say. Then when I went to college, I volunteered for the films committee. We were showing four or five different films a week from different periods every week. And uh, yeah, from there, I just went on and 
always had a, a finger in whatever local film exhibition I could get. I love that. Yeah, my the my education for me was kind of a mix because I was telling you about these these screens in Dallas that were showing all these different types of films. So you could go see the Kermaster cycle and then the next day you could go see a Takashi Miike movie mm. and and just get all the blood and, and violence you ever wanted. Mm. And so I was I kind of came up seeing both extremes and that certainly yeah. influenced the way that I, I ingest in them. And now I love, I love both extremes now. Um, but um, uh, wow, that's great. So th Jonathan, um, that's all the questions that I have. Uh, okay. Is there anything that we didn't cover today that you want to make sure people know in terms of uh, about big world that you just want to make sure is out there that I didn't, that I didn't ask? Mm, not much. I, I, I guess it would be good for people to know that we do have a Vimeo on demand page. Um, it has most of our features up on it for rental or download to own either one. And uh, you, you can typically find DVDs or Blu-rays on Amazon of our titles. Also, uh, Cinema Guild sells several of our titles from their website. We have a partnership with them as well. Um, I think that's about it. Wonderful. And is there a social platform that you prefer if people have questions or want to ask you know, reach out? Is there a particular way that you prefer? Uh, we do have a Facebook page. Uh, it's Big World Picks, P-I-X. Um, funny thing is there's another Big World Pictures that is a distributor and producer. They make biker exploitation flicks. <laughs> so <And> similar. <laughs> yeah, they, they preceded us, actually. But I was like, this name, I got to have this name. So... Now there are two big world pictures, but that's why I say big world picks PIX because uh, they might be under big world pictures on Facebook. I'm not sure. Okay. Um, yeah, I, I we're on Twitter and Instagram as well. I don't really have a preference, um, but you can find us typically under big world picks or on Twitter. I think it's Jonathan D. Howell is my handle. Well, um, thank you so much for giving us some time and uh, I can't wait to see what you continue to come out with. Me too. Can't wait to see what the other, there is in Berlin. Ah, good. Awesome. Good luck there. <laughs> All right. Thanks a lot. Good talking to you, Chris. Yeah, same. Thank you.